Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. You're fine looking bunch. All right. We are now at the last slide to cover Leviticus 8. And Leviticus 8, as you will recall, we had the ordination of the priests. They had to be holy because only holy priests can offer sacrifices. The way we've got, we've, we've been going through Leviticus, there's a certain logic to what Moses is presenting here. Uh, you don't really get that logical flow unless you pretty much study your brains out of the book and, and get used to what you are looking at and are not just getting through the material because you've got to move on for your next uh, book on your yearly Bible reading schedule. By the way, I'm not dissing yearly Bible reading schedules, don't misunderstand me, but it's good to slow down. Pick a book of the Bible, go online, purchase yourself two or three or four or five good commentaries on that book, slow down and study what the Lord has given to you. And so here we see that overall, the idea of Leviticus is that God wants to dwell with mankind. Uh, You dwell with people with whom you have a relationship. The book of Leviticus is all about relationship. You don't dwell with everybody. As humans, we have to pick, uh, you know, the one we dwell with for the rest of your life, your spouse, but we, God is infinite, and so he can dwell with everybody. He can know everybody. He knows us perfectly, better than we know ourselves. And so the only way he can dwell with people is through sacrifice. There's got to be some way a holy God can dwell with way less than holy people, which we are. All right? We're prone as living sacrifices to crawl off the altar. You know, what? I, that must have shocked especially Jewish individuals who read uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. When they got to that part about the living sacrifice, that was a new concept. Was there any sacrifice in the Old Testament that survived being offered? No, they were all, they were all killed. Except, I guess you would say, on the Day of Atonement, the goat uh, for Azazel, we call that the scapegoat, he survived, but he went out of the wilderness bearing the nation's sin. That's about the only exception I can think of to the fact that a sacrifice lived. Uh, What's that, Rusty? Oh, yes, well, that's true too, but God never intended for Isaac to be killed, so... Anyway, but that's true. Isaac did make it. Maybe that's the model of the living sacrifice, come to think of it. But still, this would have been quite an astounding thing for the average Old Testamently 
influenced person. All right, so basically then, not only do we need holy sacrifices, we need holy mediators to present the sacrifices. All right, so that's the next step, the ordination of the priests, and then, uh, as we're going to see today, the, the whole process of sacrifice is inaugurated. And finally, we get to the point where these sacrifices are being offered. But we want to make, before we depart from the ordination part of the priests, setting them apart exactly for the function that they would have, uh, we have some New Testament timeless truths we want to make sure we understand. And that is that God has provided us the capital M mediator that the entire Levitical system anticipated. All right, so once again, notice the priest is selected from one of the tribes of the Israelites, from the tribe of Levi. And in other words, he's human. Unlike the capital M mediator, which is who is human and divine, the earthly priest merely prefigured what our Savior would be as our capital M mediator. He lived a completely perfect life under the law. Isn't it remarkable that even after uh, the captivity of God's people, why is it that God was so intent on bringing all his chosen people back to the promised land? Well, one of the reasons, probably in my estimation, probably the most important reason, is so that Messiah could be born within a society that overall uh, was committed to the law. Messiah had to grow up under the law. And he had to keep it perfectly. That meant even Deuteronomy 4, or 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone, or Yahweh uniquely. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your strength. Every minute of every day. You might say, who in the world could possibly keep that mosaic stipulation? Only one. The only one who ever lived who cut that perfectly every single day, every moment of every day. And that is our Savior, who grew up under the law and flawlessly kept the law. How did he do that? He was divine and human. And he, he so prized his relationship with his heavenly Father, that he was motivated every day to do exactly what the Father's will was 
every moment of every day. What must it have been like to grow up with somebody? Let's say you're one of of our Savior's brothers. I mean, most people who grow up and they've got brothers or sisters, uh, they have interesting relationships sometimes. Some siblings want to exist seemingly for no other reason than to aggravate their big brother or their big sister. Uh, I mean, but not our Savior. He was the model for righteousness for the entire family. Never did anything wrong. Never thought a wrong thought. Never did a wrong deed. And that qualified him to be the mediator, the perfect mediator between God and man. So we were incapable of living according to the law with perfect obedience. Then, since our Savior did that, he is our high priest, and he offered himself for us once for all, dying on the cross in our place. Now that is the heart of the gospel, that our sinless Savior, God in human flesh, was qualified not simply to present blood, say, of a, of a bull. No, he offered his own blood. The emphasis all through the Aaronic priesthood is on the shed blood of the sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I don't like to see blood particularly. When it's my own blood, I really don't like it. My wife has a sister. Every time she sees blood, just faints, dead away. Can't can't handle it. (laughs) Uh, And so, especially when it's your own blood, that looks really bad. But even the blood of animals... Uh, I, don't, I don't like getting blood on myself. You know, like one time I had a new pair of boots and I was loading a deer onto my carry basket to take it to the processor and it, I, it decided to let loose with a lot of blood and it got all over my new boots. And I thought, oh, no, look at that. Uh, but in a way, that's... Uh, You know, it's important for us, I think, sometimes to realize just exactly how precious the blood of our Savior actually is. That is what representing his life shed, that blood shed for us in dying in our place. That's the heart of the gospel. Will a person turn from his own merits, he thinks, to to merit salvation? Will he turn from that and say, it's hopeless. I have no way of saving myself. My only hope is to put my confidence in the shed blood of Christ, his death for me 
on Calvary's cross, satisfying the holy wrath of God on sin. There you have it. What we must proclaim. The gospel, by the way, is not give your heart to Christ. The gospel is not invite Christ into your heart. The gospel is put your confidence in the shed blood of Christ is the only way you are going to have your sin atoned for. The only way you'll ever be made righteous. It's an act of faith that believes what God's word says. All right. So, there you have it. Look at the book of Hebrews. Look at all those verses that describe our Savior as our high priest. As a matter of fact, I would say that if you don't understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, there's really, I don't think, much way you can really appreciate what the book of Hebrews says about our Savior. As a matter of fact, in general, when one reads his New Testament, since it was proclaimed by, largely by Jews, or of course Luke is an exception, but largely by Jewish individuals, and how did they know what to write in their New Testament epistles? Well, they presented the Word of God, which was what? The New Testament? It was the Old Testament. The New Testament is based on the foundation of the Old Testament. And if we don't understand what the foundation is like, then we don't understand what was built on the foundation as we should. All right, well, I better get off of that. We won't have any time uh, to uh, continue here. All right, so let's talk now about the fact that once chapter 8 is done, the priests are all ordained. They're, they were chosen by God to be from the tribe of Levi, and they were chosen to be in a hierarchical position under Aaron. Now time for the inauguration of the holy sacrifices to begin. Everything was in place. It was a highly momentous occasion. And it's going to culminate in the appearance of God himself in his glory. We'll talk about what that means. But there it is, chapter 9, verses 1 through 24. Remember that the sacrifice, the sacrifices had a goal. And they were given in order that Israel could dwell with their holy God. Once again, the foundation of Leviticus is not legalism, it's relationship. The sooner we get that through our heads, the more we're going to realize the relationship between the Old Testament and the New is not one of, oh, well, back in the Old Testament they had to to do this uh, because that was the only way they could merit their salvation. It's crazy. Now, the whole of the scripture is 
God's working to draw men to himself so that he might have a perfect relationship with us, a relationship based on the sacrifice of our Savior, one in which we dwell with him. Actually, for the New Testament believer, he dwells with us, inside of us. And then one day, he's coming back to take us to be with him. And we get to spend forever with our Savior. There it is. From beginning to end, it's all about the relationship that God wants with human beings. Human beings who trust him and love him and obey him, live with him, abide in Christ. That's where the concept of of abiding in Christ first came from. All right, these sacrifices were required in order for Yahweh to appear. So how, do, how does anybody know whether or not their, their great God actually dwelled in the tabernacle? He dwelled above the, uh, dwelt above the cherubim on the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies, no one could see him in there. So how would they know whether he really was dwelling with them and that he accepted the sacrifices they were now about to present? And the only way that they could do that is if somehow God manifested his presence in some sort of physical form that they could see. All right, let's take a look at chapter uh, 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, this is now after seven days of priestly ordination, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering. Uh, You might say, well, why wasn't it a whole adult bull? Why the calf? Well, actually, uh, the bull calf was highly, highly prized as being the tenderest uh, bull, the best eating that you could get. He said, take a bull calf for a sin offering. This This was an offering fit for a king and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf, and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox, and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. That's the key. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Can you imagine the spectacle of this? Several million people spread out in all directions around the tabernacle, 
the tabernacle was always the center of attention in all the encampments of Israel from this time until they, until they went into the promised land. They were camped around the tabernacle. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then you're going to know that your holy God lives right in the midst of you all. He he desires fellowship with you. Now, that, that fellowship in the Old Testament was restricted. Okay? Only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. Yet, by dwelling right in the midst of the camp of Israel, the Lord is saying... If you will fellowship with me by bringing your sin offerings that, that this relationship I have with my people must be based on personal holiness, then I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. We're going to get to that at the end of this chapter. Note that the offerings were for the priests themselves and for the people of Israel. All right, take a look at verse 7. The priests themselves had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. The author of Hebrews makes a big point of this. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. Notice that phrase, as the Lord has commanded. We can't present offerings, they couldn't present offerings of anything they wanted in any manner they chose. God had specified everything you know, for those who, who actually do what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, God has not chosen some sort of, of uh, you know, you choose what you want to do in your life. You know, what seems fun to you? <laughs> Figure out with your own imagination how you ought to live as a Christian. No. Nope. Very specifically designated in the New Testament. That that is our our goal. To do everything that the Lord has commanded. And that phrase is going to show up throughout this chapter. This is essential that we understand there is a huge contrast between chapter 9 and chapter 10, where two individuals, Nadab and Abihu, figured, hey, let's go ahead and figure out on our own how we ought to present the sacrifices. Now, they didn't get another chance to try that. Aaron first offered sin and burnt offerings for himself. 
This was done once again, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 10. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar. That's the burnt offering altar. The, the altar of burnt offering made out of bronze, as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay? But the flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Just exactly what we have seen over and over again uh, in chapters 1 through 8 to this point. Now Aaron was ready to offer the people's sacrifices. These included the burnt, the grain, uh, the, excuse me, the sin, the burnt, the grain, and the peace offerings. This is exactly what we've seen uh, once again in all the descriptions of these offerings. Now they're ready to be offered. Note the repeated emphasis on doing everything exactly as as Yahweh had commanded through Moses. There is about to be a stark contrast to this in chapter 10. And I think God is emphasizing for us today the Christian life is not something that it's up to us to decide how we want to live it. And we do ourselves extreme harm. We do our relationship with our great saving God, great violence. When we encounter a, a decision of life, and we're dis, we're, we are encountering them many times during every day, if we say to ourselves, okay, what should be my response to this decision I have to make? Well, what should be the basis for that? What God has commanded. Not long ago, there was a church down in Anderson, and the pastor got up and preached that the Bible doesn't have, it doesn't use the word command or the noun commandment in the New Testament, maybe even said even in the Old Testament. No, they were suggestions. Well, how do you suppose that went? Not too well. This fellow was castigated on the internet from, from stem to stern. And well, he should have been. But this is now a growing idea in the minds of people who say, yes, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, and now I'm living the Christian life. My sins are forgiven. It really doesn't matter now how I live my life. God is, uni- is you know, uniformly gracious to me, and so it doesn't matter how I live. That has no basis in the scripture at all. From this point in Leviticus on to the last verse of Revelation, it matters how we live and what we do. Now that the sacrifices for himself and for all Israel were complete, Aaron lifted up his hands and prayed for Yahweh to bless his people. 
although Moses doesn't actually record what Aaron said. But it was an important function of the priests to pray for God's people. And whoever has any level of spiritual leadership, doesn't matter what it is, leadership over children, leadership over an entire church, leadership over a classroom, any kind of leadership. Everybody's a leader of some sort. And it is important that leaders pray for those under their influence. Look at verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands. Why that? Well, the lifting up of the hands was, in the Old Testament, the preferred posture in prayer. And uh, so, once again, I remind you that was the Old Testament preferred posture. Now I fear that many churches where people do that, they're just simply drawing attention to themselves, but that's a whole other matter. And uh, so he, he lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering. The, he, he would stand up high uh, next to the, burnt al- uh, the uh, altar of burnt sacrifice. And he would, it would be about four feet taller than where the people were. So he would come down, whether they had a ladder or a, I suspect probably a, a ramp made out of dirt, he would come down, and now uh, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. All right, let's talk about this. We have another example, although Although Moses doesn't specify what Aaron said here, we have other examples of this. One of them is in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. This is an example of the kind of prayer that the priests prayed for Israel. All right, so here it is. May Yahweh bless you, and may he guard you. Now, in... Hebrew syntax, there is a particular syntax, the arrangement of of words in a sentence that indicates what we would call a a plea that something would happen. Some technical terms for this, but uh, the, the prayer is, Lord, may you do this. Please do this. This is consistent with your will. I know it's consistent with your will. You've told me. May Yahweh bless you. What is it to be blessed? Okay. What did God promise in, the, in his relationship with his people in Exodus chapter 20? What was the blessing that came upon obedience to the covenant. What kind of things would God do? Somebody remember some of them? What did God promise his people that he would do as a part of the Mosaic covenant? 
Yes. Okay, give them peace. The only kind of peace that's really genuine. Knowing your sins are forgiven, your holy God delights in you, you have no animosity with your Creator, nor with anyone else. Wow. So that when you lay your head down in the pillow at night, you're not aware of anything between you and the Lord or anything between somebody who is uh, also a Christian. And that is peace. All right, what else? What else was God, did God say about his relationship with his people? What was blessing? Yep, a, a massive fruitfulness of your agricultural endeavors. Remember, this is an agricultural society all around Israel. There were people who worshipped false gods. And what, pray tell, was their motivation for serving false gods? Well, it was agricultural productivity. It was always this particular false deity. If you'll sacrifice for him and... uh, basically curry his favor. He'll do for you what you want him to. But always the scripture has the order like this. Respond to God's love, his great desire to have a relationship with you, and then watch God bless you by giving you a great land to live in. That's way in the future now. Agricultural productivity. That's in the future because remember, they're still out in the wilderness of Sinai. Oh, by the way, we watched the Rosenberg Report uh, this last week and we looked at a university called Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. And they're doing research there about how to make the desert blossom like a rose. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible says that when Christ returns, he's going to make the desert blossom like a rose. So right now already, some of uh, Israelites are doing research to see how they can make that happen. That's a blessing from the Lord that even currently completely arid desert is going to be agriculturally very prosperous. Most of all, blessing included the the knowledge that it is my responsibility to cause the entire world to glorify God, whom I love and serve, that they might know him too and have a relationship with him. That's all a part of God's blessing. We could stand here all day and talk about other things. May he cause his face to shine towards you. What does that mean? What's his face? Well, his face manifests his character. And the idea here is 
May this countenance give you light. That's the idea of shine towards you. The uh, idea here is to cause enlightenment. Very first thing God created was light. And now, the blessing is to cause the light of who God is to illuminate your path. So you never stumble. You don't ever wonder, what's the right thing to do here? The right thing to do is what God's character demands that we do. And may he show you gracious favor. Salvation always goes beyond merely limited blessing. Oh no, by his grace, he wants to show us favor. Undeserved, though it is, favor that will cause success in our lives. May Yahweh lift up his face, his countenance to you, same word, and may he establish peace for you. Wow, that's blessing. That's the kind of thing Aaron prayed on the day when the offerings commenced. Can you think of something that's more important to our lives today? than to be blessed by God as a result of a life that is lived according to his careful instruction of us. What kind of parent wants to raise a kid and he carefully instructs the child, this is how you must live, and then the child says, eh, I don't think so, goes off and lives the way he or she wants to. That's a sad thing. I know of a fellow, pastored his whole life, had three daughters, I think, as I recall. Two of them, married preachers, lived for the Lord their whole lives. The one daughter ran off, ended up in a prostitution. You say, what? How could that happen? The answer is because that one never really had a relationship with God. Might have gone through all the, all the uh, outward conformities as a child, but when she had the opportunity to do what she really wanted to do, it was quite a different story. Look at what we miss out on if we don't obey God, and let him establish peace for us in our lives. Verses 23 through 24 now record the climax of the narrative. Moses and Aaron bless the people, and Yahweh shows him his glory. Look at verse uh, 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle, and when they came out, 
they blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Wow! What is God's glory? God's holiness is the unique greatness of his being, and his glory is what he has chosen to manifest to us humans. So, if you will, glory is a subset of holiness. In this case, what did his how did his glory appear? Well, no doubt, as a blinding light. That's one aspect of the light of his countenance. All right? As Moses would bless the people, may you lift up your countenance upon your people. Here it is. The glory is proof that God dwells with them and that he wants to manifest himself to his people. Then fire blazes forth from, the, from Yahweh and consumes all those offerings they'd offered on the bronze altar that day. All right? Timeless truths for us. We're out of time. But we got to talk about these timeless truths just briefly. Maybe we'll come back here next week. Uh, the blessing that God desires to give us is ours as we obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way we sang this morning. I hope that was the desire of all of our hearts. This obedience we render to the Lord is a function of the relationship we have with him in the new covenant, which is far superior to the old covenant. Christ fulfilled the Mosaic legislation. That doesn't mean that Old Testament legislation is not any uh, importance for us to study. It just means that the New Testament is superior to the old. The tabernacle allowed God to dwell with his people, but there was a more intimate tabernacling that was going to be uh, with us. Turn, if you would, please, just quickly. We're out of time. To uh, John 1.14. You know this verse very well. Uh, this is a well-known, well-memorized particular verse. And... Uh, I went, I meant John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and did what? Tabernacled among us, lived in a tent, the tent of his body. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That is the ultimate manifestation of God tabernacling with man. Our Savior came to show us the Father. Every word from his mouth served that purpose. Every action he did served that purpose. Every aspect of his life was to show us God himself, because he was God in human flesh. Thank the Lord 
for his word. Our Father, we pray that you will use your word to instruct us, to empower us, to bless us as we give ourselves to you and to your plan for our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.